So what we're going to do tonight is just to do like a, an intro to systematic theology and then get started, see how far we can get into bibliology, which is the, the study of Scripture. So that's kind of where we're going tonight. And before I, before I forget, much of what I'm going to say is taking from um, this this book, Biblical Doctrine. It's a, it's a big one. Um, it, it could, you can use it as a doorstopper, but it has... <laughs> More valuable information than that, um, but if you don't, if this looks too intimidating, they've condensed it down. So same kind of doctrine called essential Christian doctrine. This one's called biblical doctrine. So um, I would highly recommend that you own at least one of these. Right? Just this is a resource when you have questions about God or questions about the Holy Spirit or questions about the Bible. Right? They are very, very helpful. You waited. Almost the end of MacArthur's life to get this one. So he was asked to do this many times with Dr. Mayhew, both in the Master's Seminary, and they finally did it. Um, Dr. Mayhew kind of in his retirement. Um, so it's, it's been out since 2016. This one's 2020. Uh, both of them are very good. So if any, you want to learn anything more about what I said, it's, it's in there. I'm glad to answer questions, but I, I wanted to put that out there first, that recommendation. That um, I, if at all possible, get one. If money's an object, um, then I th I think we've had copies in the back. Just take it, right? And we'll we'll get another and make sure of that because we want you to have that, right? So, all right. So, what we teach about the scriptures. So, first thing I want to ask you is, how many of you? Be a little interactive here. How many of you are theologians? I didn't define trained or untrained. That's a good question. All right. So about half of you raised your hands. About we'll just just guess around around half, right? But what I want you to understand is that everyone is a theologian. So what is what is theology? Just break down the word. Theo is a Greek word for God, right? Not not the God, just just God. And uh, you get theology, that's the logia, is the Greek word, and that's the word for word. So it's really uh, translated literally, it's a word about God, right? Um, not necessarily a capital G on that, as far as the Greek uh, definition is concerned. So when we talk about theology, um, we really need to be more defined, because theology just means... A word about God, and you could be Buddha's Buddha, or it could be the Muslim God, or that doesn't doesn't matter. Um, you make up the God as far as the Greek term is concerned. We don't want to do that, right? We want to know about the Christian God, the one who created the whole world and is the only true God. So, Christian theology is really what we're interested in. And so often when I use the term theology tonight, that's what I mean. I mean Christian theology. I don't mean theology in, a, in the broad sense, um, which is a different study altogether. So if you're a Christian and you've read the Bible at all, which I'm assuming is most in here, right? I don't know if everybody's a Christian, but I, I'm sure that everybody is in here read the Bible, something from the Bible. You're a theologian. You're studying about God. And not just directly about God, but about God, about his creation, about who he has made us, how we are to respond, how we are to live, about sin, about salvation. All that is encompassed under theology. Now let me ask you another question. If, if, you, if someone came up to you and said, what type of Christian are you? Right? What, and you were only able to give them a one-word response. Right? What type of Christian are you? What would you give them? Two words. Two words. Follower huh? of Jesus. Follower of Jesus, all right? right? That, that's a good definition, but one word. <laughs> give me your hyphenated. I won't be legalistic. Okay, Bible believing. Right? I like it. Good. Hey, anything else? Oh, yeah. Believer? Is that what you said? Yep. None of you would say, well, I'm conservative. None of you are a conservative Christian. What about an evangelical Christian? Right? 
Yeah, well, the word, some, someone used that, but the word um, has lost a lot of its meaning because it's a huge, the word evangelical is a huge camp these days. There's no bounds to it. You can almost deny Christ and still be evangelical for some people. What about Reformed? Some of you might define yourself as, I'm Reformed. Right? Maybe. Some might go Reformed Baptist. They want that, you know, second word in there. But I'm trying to get us to one word. How, how would you define yourself? What, what type of Christian? Or maybe just a Baptist, if that's your background. Or some might even use the word Calvinist. Good word or a bad word for some people, right? Well, there's, there's one word that comes close to the hyphenated word um, that, was, that was used, and, and that is biblicist. Right? If there's anything that defines us, you can say Bible-believing, that's a whole lot easier, but just one word, biblicist, or you know, we are bibli- uh, biblical Christians to use two words, um, to not stretch our name too too much, but we're Bible, we're Medina Bible Church for a reason. It I understand that there are some Bible churches that teach some strange things and have some wacky doctrine and don't teach the Bible, but we but we have the name Medina Bible Church. The Bible is there because it's central to everything we do. It's the foundation of what we do, and it, it directs and guides us. Um, John MacArthur. Um, likes the term biblicist. In fact, many people have often asked him, are you a Calvinist? And he'll often defer that because he doesn't exactly know what they mean by by their definition of Calvin. So he'll say, I prefer the term biblicist. I'm a biblicist. And he explains that while it's not a perfect term, and I'm quoting here, we have chosen biblicist because at the core of our convictions lie an unshakable trust in God's inerrant and infallible Bible rightly interpreted, right? unquote. So at, at the start of the study, we just want to say that we're deriving our theology from the scriptures, from the Bible. We're not uh, using philosophy. Right? It's another way to go about it, and others would do that. We're not interested in, in uh, philosophy. We're not interested in uh, natural theology. We'll say more, a little bit more about that in a moment. But we're just interested in theology, uh, Christian theology from the Word. So if you were to define Christian theology, it would be something like this, the study of the divine revelation in the Bible. So the study of the divine revelation in the Bible. Right? It has God's uh, perpetual, sorry, it has God's at its perpetual centerpiece. So theology, Christian theology, it has God as its centerpiece and God's word as its source, and it has godliness as its aim. And we're not just interested in filling your heads with facts. Right? God wants to instruct your minds that your heart would follow and you would worship him. You know, that's Romans 12, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Right? So it's not just filling your head, it's filling your head when with the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, you will be transformed by the, by the Word of God. So that's true even in, as we study theology. It's not just about facts. Um, Alva J. McLean explains Christian theology this way. He says, Out of God all things come. He is the origin. Through God all things exist. He is the sustainer of all things. Unto God, back to God, He is the goal. There is the circle of eternity, out, through, and back, all to God, unquote. Uh, David Wells, another theologian, has said this, Theology is the sustained effort to know the character, will, and acts of the triune God as he has disclosed and interpreted these for his people in Scripture in order that we might know him, learn to think our thoughts after him, live our lives in this world on his terms, and by thought and action, project his truth into our own time and culture, unquote. So I, I, I particularly like the phrase, thinking God's thoughts after him. So you're going to see a couple of verses that really talk about that, um, particularly in, in 1 Corinthians 2, where we have in 3, 
we have the mind of Christ, Scripture says, tell us. And that's what he's thinking. We are to think. Scriptures help us to think God's thoughts after him. So um, we are coming to the Scriptures to learn about God. Now, there are different kind of categories of theology, even Christian theology. So I just want to list these. Um, one is biblical theology. I'll just read the definitions. These are taken from biblical doctrine. Biblical theology is the organization of Scripture thematically by biblical, uh, by biblical chronology or by biblical author with respect to the progressive revelation of the Bible. So it's looking at themes. Um, you know, word studies really help with like doing biblical theology. How did Paul look at justification versus how James looked at justification? So that's, that's looking at, at one way to look at biblical theology. Secondly, you have dogmatic theology. This is the organization of Scripture with an emphasis on a favored or select church creeds. Uh, some some uh, books on theology are called dogmatics, right? entitled that way. So they're more focused on uh, doctrines or church creeds. Then there's exegetical theology. And this is the methodological organization of Scripture by dealing exegetically with individual texts of Scripture. Um, then there is historical theology. So historical theology is how a particular text or doctrine has been interpreted uh, from age to age to age, like the doctrine of the Trinity, right, and how that has um, really developed over the ages. That would be historical theology. Then you have natural theology, which I mentioned already, and that's the study of God by what nature shows us, right? So there is there's limited information that nature can show us about God, but it is still there. Um, and then also we call pastoral or practical theology. That's taking doctrine and applying it practically to your life, right? And then lastly, systematic theology. So the organization of Scripture by a synthesis of scriptural teaching summarized using major categories and emphasis uh, throughout Scripture. So systematic theology allows us to answer the question, what does the Bible teach on blank topic? So, for example, what does the Bible teach about the Bible? What does the Bible teach about itself, essentially? Or what does the Bible teach about man? Or what does the Bible teach us about the Holy Spirit? All that, that those kind of questions are systematic theology-type questions. Because you're not interested in just what one passage teaches on that particular topic. You're interested in what the breadth of Scripture teaches on that particular topic. And that requires systematic theology. Um, so really, systematic theology, biblical theology, and exegetical theology kind of flow together, and they build, they build on one another. So we don't want to build a system on man's thinking. We want to build it on the Scriptures done rightly through right exegesis of the text, and, and then bringing that that system together. So those kind of flow together. Um, so again, systematic theology answers the question, what does the Bible teach about a certain topic? Right? So that's what we want to try and do. Now, there in within systematic theology, there are different subcategories. I'm just going to mention these. There'll be no test on this, right? I know you're relieved. So... But uh, to give you an idea, some of what we're going to be covering, so bibliology is the study or doctrine of the inspiration, inerrancy, and authority, and canonicity of Scripture. So you've got bibliology. Then you've got theology, we call theology proper. It's all about God, who God is, right? Um, including the triunity of God. You've got Christology, right? Which is what? You get the pattern, right? It's about Christ, it's a study of Christ, the word about Christ, literally. Um, then you've got pneumatology, which is, again, from the, from the Greek word for spirit. So it's all about the Holy Spirit, so a study of the Holy Spirit. You've got anthropology, anthro being what? Man? Exactly. So it's a study of man, biblically. You've got hamartiology, easy for me to say, right? From the Greek word for sin. Right? So it's a, the doctrine of sin, right? Then you've got soteriology, right? Soteri, again, all these pre prefixes are coming from the Greek. Soteri refers to salvation. So it's the doctrine of salvation. Angeology, you get that one, right? Because the Greek's similar to the English. It's a study of angels. What does the Bible teach about angels? 
good angels, bad angels, uh, the devil himself. Uh, ecclesiology. Right? Ecclesia, you probably recognize, maybe recognize the term for the church. It's the study of the doctrine of the church. And then eschatology. Eschaton is, a, is the word for last, or study of last things, right? Or study of end times is another way to put that. So this isn't an exhaustive list, but those are the major categories within systematic theology. And, and we touch on all these areas within our doctrinal statement. So that's why I mentioned that, just to help you frame that. We don't always use these terms, um, and, and probably less so than and other, other times, just because they can be confusing. But I wanted you to be exposed to them. So why study system, systematic theology? Probably is obvious, but let me just state the obvious. Think about the obvious. Why, why study systematic theology? Why not just like, give me a book of the Bible and let's study it, which is my bread and butter. It's what I like to do the best. But why don't we just always do that? Yeah, Hakum? Correct, right. To, to be a biblicist, we need to know the whole Word of God, which obviously we're growing in that, and we're not, not going to reach a perfected state in, in this life. And I'm convinced maybe not even in the next life because we're just humans, we're not God. But the, we're growing in this knowledge. So we need to understand not just what a text says, but what Scripture says. So we want to we understand what the Bible teaches us about a topic so that we can more accurately know God and worship Him in spirit and in truth. Remember John 4.24, God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Contrary to what our culture says, God doesn't accept whatever worship you want to bring. He dictates the manner in which you come to him and the means that you come to him and what he accepts as worship. So why God, uh, Christ, forgives all, no matter what you've done in your life, no matter what sin you've had in your life, anyone who flees to Christ, who asks Christ to forgive them, who asks Christ to be his Savior, is, is saved and redeemed, right? That's, that's just the grace of God and the mercy of God all combined at the cross. So Christ died for our sins so that, so that he could forgive us our sins and, and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, right? So those are blessed truths. That does not mean that God is now, oh, I don't care how you come to me. You come any way you want to. That, that's just simply not true. That's what our culture has uh, as an idea of God, but that is simply not true. So Jesus said, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. So there are false ways that people try to come to God that God does not accept as worship. Um, We studied systematic theology also so we can be established in sound doctrine. We don't naturally have sound doctrine, so we need to be taught that. So think about the categories of Scripture. We're going to see... Second uh, Timothy three sixteen lots tonight. All Scripture is God breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. So, so even systematic theology, because we're using Scripture, teaches us, it reproves us, it corrects us, and it trains us in righteousness. Remember, we're just not trying to learn theology to fill fill our heads or to sound cool in a conversation with some Reformed people, right? We're we're doing it to help us. Grow in Christ. Be more like Christ. So our goal is to know more about our our Lord. And to kind of, you know, theology can, is a big subject. Uh, systematic theology is big. We could go a long time. That that book over here is like a thousand pages. So if, if we tackled that, we'd be here a while. So I've got to narrow the scope a little bit to the doctrinal statement of our church, which touches on many of these areas that I've mentioned um, some places it'll go deeper than other places, but that's where we'll start. And if you have questions that uh, that go deeper, that's fine as we as we tackle those. So what I want to do uh, is to really just pause a minute um, and and pray with you and thank the Lord that He's revealed Himself to us and we have opportunity to study His Word. and And I really like this. I I had a class with Doctor uh, Andy Naselli. As he was teaching us some doctrines in class, uh, TMS Master Seminary this summer, and he would, we would be studying some pretty heavy doctrines um, about election and reprobation 
Reparation is the doctor is the doctrine. It's kind of the opposite of election, right? So pretty heavy stuff. But at times he would just pause, and and just just pray and lead us in worship to our Lord and to our God for for what He's revealed to us and how He interacts with us. So I I want to kind of incorporate some of that so our theology just isn't in like some dry lecture. Right? So would you please pray with me, our Lord. We want to thank you that you have revealed yourself to us that you have given us your word and the ability through your Holy Spirit to understand your word and, Lord, this uh, capacity to be able to systematize your word. And we just ask that you would help us to do that correctly and rightly, and we would do that in a way that transforms us, transforms our mind and how we think about you and how we live. And, Lord, just please allow what we learn to, to change how we live for your glory. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. So we want to get started into bibliology, and we'll just see how far we get with this tonight. And um, the main point that I want you to hear is that the Word of God is inerrant. It's infallible. It's the Word of God. The Bible is our only sure guide to understanding man, God, sin, salvation, Christ, how, and how God wants us to live. There is no other source, none at all. And there are many people today who are casting doubt on the Word of God. Some of them masquerade as pastors. Some of them even well-known pastors who will tell you you don't need the Bible, and the Bible is full of mistakes and errors, and, and on and on it goes. There are many wolves today. Do not listen to them. The Word of God is inerrant, right? It is without any error whatsoever. It is inspired. Um, can I get somebody's help, Joe, maybe? Yeah, I should have passed those out earlier, but I printed out our doctrinal statement on just bibliology and what it teaches about the Scripture, so you can have that in front of you. Yeah, I was passing that out there. So what I'm going to do is I want to take this kind of paragraph by paragraph as we work through that. I'll give you a minute to, to get one of those. It's probably a good time to just pause and ask you if you yeah, have any questions before we jump into bibliology. Yeah, Scott? I think more of a comment. We keep thinking about the, the aim of why we study Christian theology. Not just the knowledge that we pray from the liturgy. I think along the way in the middle, there's the treasuring what Christ has done, and knowing God really helps with that. Why? Really thinking about God's amazing grace and mercy that leads to bearing fruit, leads to changing, but never to just to, to always emphasize that. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. So just, just what Scott was saying, just treasuring, as we study systematic theology and learn more about God, just learning to treasure him more. Right? Um, I, I agree with that. Yeah. The more we learn about God, the more you know, um, we're amazed at him. I, I think the more we learn about God, the more we realize we don't really, we, well, we don't know everything there is to know about God. Certainly we don't, but it's just, it's just amazing uh, to learn about someone who is perfect right? in all his ways. All his ways are just and right. And how he works, uh, even now orchestrating things um, without any effort at all, is pretty amazing. So just thanks for drawing that out, Scott. Any, any questions or other comments? Okay. Well, let's dig in. What we teach about the Holy Scriptures, and I have uh, brought in, in most cases I've brought the Scriptures right into my notes, and I'm using the Legacy Standard Bible, unless I say otherwise. There's times where I might uh, reference something uh, using the New American Standard, the 95 version, but uh, many times I'll just be using the Legacy Standard version. So just, let me just start out by reading the first paragraph. We teach that the Bible is God's written revelation to man. And thus the 66 books of the Bible given to us by the Holy Spirit constitute the plenary, that is the inspired equally in all parts, the plenary word of God. 
You know, three scriptures that are uh, really two scriptures that are listed there. It lists more. I'll, I'll mention three. First Corinthians two, uh, verses seven to fourteen. So you can open up your Bibles to that. Second, sorry, First Corinthians. This is a passage we'll hit on a number of times as we study this. It's mentioned in the doctrinal statement several times. So in this passage, Paul is talking about his strategy or his philosophy of ministry, his philosophy of preaching, how he didn't come, um, that he came preaching Christ and he didn't come trying to bring together um, a message that was filled with man's wisdom. Now, Paul's not saying he didn't speak wisely, that he just kind of rattled off the first thing off the top of his head. That's, that's not accurate. But what he's saying is he didn't come with a, a Greek philosophy in mind. Like the, the Corinthians were very much in the Greek culture, the Roman culture. They liked to hear new things. They, liked, they were accustomed to hearing philosophers. And the philosopher with like the most winsome approach and new ideas garnered a larger crowd, which meant he got more cash. So not so different than health and wealth prosperity gospel today. Except then they weren't, I don't think, promising health, wealth, and prosperity. But that's a different story. But the point is that Paul's saying he didn't come with a strategy to attract human attention and garner a human response. Right? So in that context, he says, uh, we don't speak wisdom. If you look at verse 6. Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. Wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would, have, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So the wisdom that Paul is going to be it, come presenting, that he did come preaching is wisdom that flows from Christ and the rulers of this age, be they Roman or Jewish, didn't get it, right? They missed it and therefore they crucified uh, the person that we know is Christ, this Lord of glory, right? Um, but Paul says in verse 9, but just as it is written, things the eye has not seen and the ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man all that God has prepared for those who love him. Now watch verse 10 very closely. For to us, God revealed them through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. So the Holy Spirit's involved in revealing things that were not revealed to the natural man that are revealed through the Spirit, right? For whom among for who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we may know the things freely given to us by God. Things we also speak, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. So Paul is saying that the Holy Spirit has, has revealed that which was not revealed, was not seen by the Jewish leaders, by the Roman leaders, by the world leaders of that time. But look at, look at verse 14. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So wisdom flows from the Lord, flows from God, right? Through the Spirit revealed to us through these human instruments that we know as the, as the authors of Scripture. But look at that last phrase. It's really amazing. But we have the mind of Christ. Now, we don't have it exhaustively, but that's a key phrase. We have the mind of Christ. It, it's pointing us to the fact that this, the mind of Christ is revealed to us through the pages of Scripture. So that's why Scripture helps us to think God's thoughts after him. Right? 
So we don't want to be trailblazers and coming up with new ideas. We want to walk in God's ways. We want to think God's thoughts, think how he thinks about us, about sin, about creation. And and we want to think accurately about him. So these books, and again, uh, I won't take the time uh, tonight to defend the 66 books of the Bible. That's kind of a different look at how how we got our Bible, and we've done that in lessons uh, in the past. But these 66 books of the Bible were given to us by the Holy Spirit, and both in their whole and their individual parts, they are God's Word. Um, we can turn to 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21 uh, for another text to help us with this, understand this. So 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21 Know this first of all, that no prophecy comes by one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by the will of men, but men, being moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. So this this text helps us to to understand some of the, the process of Scripture. So there are portions of Scripture that are dictated. In other words, God, they, they read, thus God said, and then quotes, right? And those portions you have dictated. But much of the scripture is written not through dictation, but through the, the Holy Spirit moving the, the men who wrote scripture to write what he wanted to write. So when it talks about, verse 20 talks about, notice first of all that no prophecy of Scripture come, comes by one's own interpretation. It's not, when it says the word interpretation, it's not referring to the interpretation of Scripture as the origination of Scripture. So the Scriptures don't come about by, by our own origination, originating from man. Right? No prophecy is ever made by the act of, of the will of man, but being moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So the idea of moved by the Holy Spirit, it's, it carries the idea or the imagery of like a ship, a sailing vessel on the seas, and the, the sail is, is open and to catch the wind, right? And it's being blown by the wind in the direction that, um, that, it, that it desires to go. So in this case, sovereignly, the Holy Spirit moved these men to write what they wrote, and he didn't override their natural characteristics. So, you know, Paul writes a certain way, John writes a certain way, and uh, Luke writes a certain way, with different kind of vocabulary, different style, and we can pick up on that. So the Holy Spirit didn't override all that. And, and yet, through that, every jot and tittle is the Word of God. I use the word jot and tittle, you hear that referenced, but it's the smallest letter. You heard uh, Steve Lawson mention a few, last lesson or a few lessons ago, Right? So it's that, that, that the jot is the smallest letter of Hebrew. So, meaning if you just lose that one little letter, something's changed, right? And the tittle is just really a, a small part of a letter that if it's not there, it changes, changes a letter. And I think Steve used um, uh, an example like in, in some of our letters. Like if you look at an R or an N, there's only really a, just a small part that's different, right? Between an R and an N. So it's, a tittle is like losing that little part. So Jesus says that even, even down to the letter that the, that the scriptures are inspired. So that's the confidence we can have that the Bible is the word of God. And with this, I, I um, wanted to read Psalm 19, just part, part of it. Psalm 19, verses 7 and 9. Psalm 19, verses 7 and 9. And again, I'll read reading from the Legacy Standard Bible. The law of Yahweh, right? So the Legacy Standard Bible uses uh, the, really uh, the name of God, Yahweh, instead of translating it Lord, like with uh, all capital letters. So just want to mention that because some may not be used to that. The law of Yahweh is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of Yahweh is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of Yahweh are right, Rejoicing the heart. The commandment of Yahweh is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of Yahweh is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of Yahweh are true. They are righteous altogether. 
You see the description that Scripture describes of itself. And then the world would say, well, that's circular reasoning. You need to have something else to, to prove this, and we would reject that. So it's not that you can't use outside references to show the trustworthiness of the Bible. There, there's good evidence for that. But a key, I guess a key doctrine that we have is that Scripture always stands in judgment of men and women. Never the other way around. So Scripture is going to authenticate itself. If this is truly the Word of God written over thousands of years, if, it, if it's really the Word of God, it will all um, interrelate and connect in ways that don't uh, contradict one um, or the other passage. And, and it does do that. So the law of, of Yahweh, is, it's true. It's righteous altogether. There's, there's nothing... Contrary, there's nothing false within it, right? Everything breathed out by the mouth of God is true and right. right? So this message isn't designed to like, deal with um, uh, the objections to some of that that some people raise. So you could look at that. That's, a, that's another study of systematic theology called really apologetics, uh, giving a defense. Right? What we're looking at is what the Word of God says about itself. We need to be reminded what the Word of God says about itself because, again, our culture is pulling us the other way. Our culture is causing us to doubt the Word of God. But the Word of God is pure. Let me just uh, pause to, to thank the Lord for His pure Word. Our Lord, what amazing God that You are. Lord, as uh, we stop and consider the reflections on Your Word, how You moved men to write the word of God, to write exactly what you wanted to, to tell us about you and sin and salvation and creation and how to live. Lord God, you work through them and you cause your word to come forth as true and right. And you preserved your word through the centuries, Lord, through thousands of years. And you've caused your word to be translated into a language we can understand. And we thank you for that, Lord God. We thank you that the, that the Bibles we hold in our hands are accurate and true. And that whatever questions about certain passages of the Bible we have in English translation, they are minor. And all the major doctrines and truths about you are not in question because you have given us your word. You preserved your word. And we just thank you for that, Lord God. You're a good God. Help us, Lord, to just to, to know you better through your word, to take better, um, to make better use of your word. Uh, Lord, what a privilege it is that we have your word uh, in such easy access in our lives. Help us in our devotions, Lord, and spending time reading and studying your word. May we be people of the word, not just by label and name, but at heart. Thank you, Lord, for working to give us your word. And let me pray. Amen. Well, let me get started with paragraph. Well, let me just stop and ask questions about paragraph one before I go to paragraph two. Any questions or comments? Okay. Paragraph two. We teach that the word of God is an objective, propositional revelation. Verbally inspired in every word, absolutely inerrant in the original documents, infallible in God-breathed, we teach the literal grammatical historical interpretation of Scripture, which affirms the belief that the opening chapters of Genesis present creation in six literal days. So let's look at those Scripture references. So first, first statement is we teach the Word of God as an objective propositional revelation. Objective meaning it's not open to debate. It's, it's not subjective, right? It's not how we feel, right? That would be subjective. It's, it's objective. This is objective reality, which we live in a world that rejects objective truth, right? But that's why we have to reiterate in a, to ourselves, right, and to those we evangelize, the Word of God is objective truth. It's propositional. It's putting forth propositions, Statements of truth, declarations of truth. Right? Um, let's look at First Thessalonians two thirteen. 
And here Paul is, in his letter to the Thessalonian Thess- the church at Thessalonica, is um, just rejoicing and just listen to him. He says, and for this reason, we also thank God without ceasing that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also is at work in you who believe. So that's 1 Thessalonians 2.13. It's really amazing. So he went to the Thessalonians and he was preaching the gospel to them. And he, he, he now he's writing to them and say, we rejoice because you received it not as the word of men. In other words, it wasn't just, it wasn't my word. I did the preaching or others did the preaching that worked with Paul, but it wasn't really Paul. They saw the ultimate author behind his preaching. Keep in mind, they didn't have like the New Testament written out. I mean, they were, they were getting it, right? This letter of First Thessalonians was, is part of our scriptures. They were just receiving it. But before they had received this, it's not like they had a New Testament in front of them saying this is the Word of God. They had, they had uh, the Old Testament to some extent. They would have access to it. Keep in mind, because of the high cost of paper and writing and, and like they used animal skins and papyrus uh, and all these other things to write on, those are expensive. So you didn't have, the average person did not have uh, you know, a copy of the Word of God in their home. Because of the you know spirit of God working through Paul's preaching and opening the eyes of those who heard, the Thessalonians received his preaching as the very word of God, and that's why he he rejoices and gives thanks for that. Mm-hmm. Another passage uh, that we um, have uh, turned to before, but I just want to highlight two passages from it. It's first First Corinthians two. Just verses 12 and 13, and, and, and that is this. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the depths graciously given to us by God, out of which depths also, we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but those taught by the spirit, combining spiritual depths with spiritual words. So again, just the spirit working to give us his word and help us to rightly understand his word. And that word is, is verbally inspired in, in every word. I've emphasized that, but this re-emphasizes that. 2 Timothy 3.16. 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be equipped, having been thoroughly equipped for every good work. And I like how the Legacy Bible translates that, that it's, Scripture is God-breathed, uh, like the NASB would say, inspired. And it's easy for us to misunderstand inspired. Like, as we speak about artists or singers being inspired when they wrote a certain song, and they, you know, just the, the uh, common way we use the word inspired makes it easy to misunderstand. The word really is breathed out, right? God breathed out His Word, right? He's giving His, his speech, um, that word is coming from him. And it's all scripture, every part of it, again, in whole and in, in part. And to interpret scripture literally, we need to use the literal, grammatical, historical interpretation of scripture. So what does it mean? What does literal, grammatical, historical interpretation mean? What does that mean? Literal means that you read the word of God and means what it says. Okay. So it means what it says. Means what it says. That's a and then the grammatical historical is that we're taking what it means what it says in the grammar of the day, which is Hebrew and the Old Testament, Greek and New Testament, replacing those writings and those events recorded, some of descriptive, some of prescriptive, and putting that into where it happened, when it happened. Okay. Yeah, that's a that's a good explanation. So, you know, literal, you're looking at what what is the what makes sense, right? What as you read it, right? You're looking at the grammar, right? That it's written in Hebrew, Greek, Aramaic, whatever it's written in, and then you're also taking into consideration the historic historical context of when it was written because words change in history and, and the way that things uh, are phrased change. 
So you're looking at all those things. Um, the uh, biblical doctrine lists five interpretive pr principles so to kind of kind of build on this just just a little bit. Um, I'm going I'm to read those, and I'm going to back up just a minute. And I would say to interpret Scripture literally means to understand it as the author intended. I think that's a good way to put it, understanding it as the author intended it, which requires literal. It requires grammatical and historical, but it also doesn't overlook figures of speech. It doesn't overlook genre. Genre is, is a word that talks about types of language, like you have uh, historical books, you have um, epistles like letters that are more teaching and didactic, you have um, sections where you've got prophecy, you've also got poetry. So genre just means that you, you take that into consideration. So, you know, like, for example, when Jesus says, I am a door, you know, we all understand he's not talking about a, a literal door, right? That, that's what we're talking about with uh, interpreting things literally. So if, it, if a literal sense doesn't make sense, which in that statement it doesn't, then you got to go seek some other sense. There's something else Jesus meant. Right? But we start with the literal. We start with the plain meaning of the word and the statement. Um, the literal principle, and I'll just read. These are going to be quotes from biblical doctrine. The literal principle is this. Scripture should be understood in its literal, natural, and normal sense. While the Bible does, not, does contain figures of speech and symbols, they are intended to convey literal truth. In general, however, the Bible speaks in literal terms and must be allowed to speak for itself. Then there is the historical principle. A passage should be interpreted in its historical context. What the author intended and what the text meant to its first audience must be taken into account. In this way, a proper contextual understanding of the original meaning of Scripture can be grasped and articulated. Then there is the grammatical principle. This task requires under, an understanding of the basic grammatical structure of each sentence in the original languages. To whom do these pronouns refer, for example? What tense is the main verb? By asking questions like these, the meaning of the text becomes clear. So that's what we mean by grammatical. To those, to those three, they add two more. One is called the, what they call the synthetic principle, meaning you're synthesizing things. This principle, also called the analogia of Scripture, the analogy of Scripture, means that Scripture is to be its own interpreter. It assumes that the Bible does not contradict itself. Thus, if an understanding of a passage conflicts with a truth taught elsewhere in the Scriptures, that interpretation cannot be correct. Scripture must be compared with Scripture to discover its accurate and full meaning. So if you're studying a passage of Scripture and it seems to suggest, we did it the other, we did it a few weeks ago, right? Or last week. If you're studying a passage and it seems to suggest God changing his mind, right? When we did that, that caused us to stop and consider. So we had to go look. Is that, is that really what that text is saying, that God changed his mind, Right? That seems to contradict some other passages of Scripture. So you have to wrestle with that. So that's what passage is saying. So if your interpretation of a passage contradicts another passage, something's wrong. And it's not Scripture. It's your interpretation of one text or the other text. So um, you have to look at both of those. The correct interpretation will synthesize with all other passages of Scripture. Then the fifth one is called the clarity principle the clarity principle, and that is God intended Scripture to be understood. However, not every portion of the Bible is equally clear. Therefore, clearer portions should be employed to interpret the less clear. So you use the sections of Scripture that are more clear to help you understand the less clear. Right? So that's, that, if you remember those five, it'll really help you in your, in your Bible study and, and interpreting Scripture correctly. Now let me just uh, add to that 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 uh, our doctrinal statement mentions that the literal, grammatical, historical method of interpretation leads us to belief in six-day creationism. Let me just read those two passages that are referenced there. Genesis 1.31, And God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. I know Christians have a big debate about what the word day is. 
But let me just say that God never uses, Hebrew never uses the word for day, that's yom, never uses that word for a long period of time when there's a number by it. Anytime you see a number by it, it's very specific. This is sixth day. God defined it. He did it. It's a 24-hour day. Right? So that's, that's faithful to the Hebrew text. Right? So a literal interpretation Right? You might say, well, that doesn't make sense based on what? Based on science? These days, are you going to trust science to be your ultimate authority? I don't think so. It changes too much. So even when I can't understand the science, even when the science doesn't make sense, right? I'm going to trust the Word of God, and God will work out the science, even when we don't understand it. So that's what we're talking about with the ultimate authority. It comes down to it. What are you going to trust? NASA? Or are you going to trust the Bible? I know there are some things that are hard to understand that NASA shows us in pictures. I can't explain all of them, but I'm not going to doubt the Word of God. You can't go wrong doubting the Word of God. God created it. And it's not just Genesis, by the way. Look at Exodus, Exodus 31, verses 16 and 17. Um, so the sons of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to celebrate the Sabbath throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. It is a sign between me and the signs of Israel forever. For in six days Yahweh made heaven and earth, but on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. So it's not just Genesis after all. And there are many other passages we could go to to reinforce that. But a literal, historical, grammatical method of interpretation leads you to six-day a view of six-day creation. That's just, that's just one example. Now, I, I want to stop there, and I, and I um, will pick up next time with that. I apologize it'll be a month, but what we'll do is we'll dig into those other paragraphs, but then at the end of that, I want to talk about some implications. Right? So, so these things are true, but, but what are the implications? What are the implications for our Bible study? What are the implications for your daily devotions? What are the implications for preaching? So we'll talk about that at the end. Well, let me just close in prayer. And if you have any questions, feel free to catch me afterwards. All right, let's pray. Our Lord God, we just want to praise you for giving us your wonderful word, a word that is true, that is right, a word that we can understand. Lord, it's not like the Gnostics say you have to have some kind of secret knowledge or some kind of secret decoder ring to understand this. If we're born again by your, by your Spirit, you give us the ability to understand. Help us to work diligently and faithfully to be workmen who rightly divide the Word of God, having, having no reason to be ashamed that we are accurately handling the Word of God. Lord, just cause us to rejoice in, in the God of the Word. Lord, these, your Word reflects upon you, your greatness and your majesty. Thank you for giving us your Word. Help us to make good application of it in our lives. Feed us with it. For your glory and honors, name of Christ we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the pulpit ministry of Medina Bible Church in Medina, Ohio. You can find church information, a complete sermon library, and other helpful materials at medinabible.org. This message is copyrighted by Medina Bible Church. All rights reserved.